Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Simbox Present. Let's talk boxing with your hosts, Luke and Ewan. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of Simbox Presents, Let's Talk Boxing. I'm your host, Luke Carney, and as always, I will be joined by my co-host, Mr. Ewan Breeze. And before we get underway with today's episode, I would just like to let our listeners know that you can check us out across social media, and we're on Twitter, at Simbox, we're on Instagram, at Sim underscore Box, and you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is Simbox Boxing, we provide daily updates, breaking news, and debate all things boxing. Hi guys, Luke here of Simbox. I would like to bring of Simbox Presents Let's Talk Boxing. I'll be your host today and I'm delighted to be joined by Ewan Breeze. How are you doing, Ewan? Yeah, good, thank you, mate. Excited to get back into it. Absolutely. I think, you know, during this drought of boxing action, you know, we've, we've really stepped up to the plate at Simbox and, and continue to strive to bring... Uh, consistent fresh content for our followers and uh, back with the podcast it's just another avenue of content that we're excited to bring in something that I'm looking to jump feet first back in with yourself you know we've had a couple of successful episodes recently with the, the previews of the Deontay Wilder Tyson Fury rematch uh, the Joshua Andy Ruiz rematch um, and hopefully moving forward this is something that's going to become more regular as boxing starts to return we'll have much more topics to debate and reason to uh, converse about boxing so absolutely looking forward to, to getting into this today and also really excited for the future. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's exciting to get back into. But luckily, we're back in my world now with no uh, no current fights. We're looking back into some of the historical fights, which is, uh, as everybody knows, my uh, my favourite place to look. So uh, I'm excited for this one as well as the future. Yeah, absolutely. So just so the listeners are up to date with where we're at today's episode, uh, myself and you and are going to be breaking down fights that should have happened now, this isn't necessarily fantasy fights as such, where we're picking fights from different eras, but fights between certain boxes that at a particular time in history should and maybe could have happened. Uh, fights that maybe were scheduled, were heavily rumoured, um, and for one reason or another, they just... And, and get both boxes into the ring. Uh, I picked three fights from the modern era, and of course our boxing historian here at Simbox Ewan has gone back in time and picked three fights that should have happened uh, in the glory years of boxing, shall we say? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a there's a long the long list from various different eras, but some going through them, and some of the best ones are from the modern era. Some of the best ones are are ones that you've picked for recently, because there's with so many more fighters nowadays and so many more belts, there is more opportunity for fighters to miss each other. Yeah, most definitely. So I think beforehand, before we get into the feature of today's episode, uh, as always, I'd just like to wish our listeners well, our followers well. You know, it's, it's very difficult times uh, with, with the corona situation. So, you know, our thoughts are with everyone at, at these testing times and, you know, I wish everybody well. Yeah, echo that. It's obviously, it's really, really trying times for everyone and we're all in it together and obviously... Uh, we just want to provide the best content for people while they're sat at home or if they're not very well, just something to keep them company. Absolutely. Uh, and speaking of boxing news, you know, there's a constant array of, of different uh, bits of content online and, you know, social media nowadays mean that, you know, any breaking news or anything like that is, is only a click of a button away. And I think the, the video doing the rounds at the minute, and it'd be something to, to quickly touch on, 
is the video of, of Mike Tyson at the grand old age of 53, uh, lightning fast on the pads, and now it's fueling rumours of, of a possible comeback. What's your thoughts on that, Ewan? I was, it was all I could see on my social media. It was, uh, it was quite the phenomenon. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit sceptical. I think that everyone, everyone can look good on the pads for a, a four or five punch combination, especially a former world champion. But we forget him getting starched 15 years ago by Danny Williams out in Louisiana. Um, we forget that actually he did, he did really come to the end of his career quite spectacularly and he, he proved that he couldn't compete anymore before he left. And I don't want to be, you know, the, jo- the, the, uh, the kind of buzzkill and say, oh, don't get carried away, but, you know, don't get carried away. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely second those thoughts. I think uh, it's very easy to forget that the Mike Tyson, like you say, of, of the end of his career, you know, getting beat by Kevin McBride and Danny Williams and, you know, people that he really would have put away in a round at his prime and, you know, maybe we've not seen a prime Mike Tyson for, for 30 years, you know, going back to the early 90s. And it's, it's very easy to, to let uh, fondness uh, almost blur the memory of, of the, the years between his prime and, and the, today. Um, boxing fans, uh, maybe sport fans in general, you know, they tend to like to think that today's athletes wouldn't compete with boxers of yesteryear or footballers of yesteryear. Um, you know, so to think like a Mike Tyson at 53 years of age could come back and be uh, competitive anywhere near uh, anywhere near the top of, of, of any heavyweight division um, is quite absurd. He looked very good for a 53-year-old, but at the end of the day, he, he is 53. Um, and hopefully it's nothing more than just, you know, garnering a bit of social media attention and, and just throwing up that debate. And, you know, I think there's talks of an exhibition bout, which, uh, you know, if it's done under the right circumstances, then by all means, you know, I wish Mike Wells is a legend. He's one of my favourite boxers. Um, but I just really wouldn't want to see him hurt at this stage, which would unfortunately be the only outcome should he return to the ring. Yeah, and don't, don't get me wrong, he'd, he'd, he'd absolutely decapitate 99% of the population. Us mere mortals would still have absolutely no chance against a 53-year-old Mike Tyson, but uh, the elite athletes at the top of the heavyweight division are, are a different animal. You can't compete when you're that age. It's, it's just not been done. You know, George Foreman beat Michael Mora, but you forget he also lost to people like Axel Schultz. Uh, you can't yeah. do it. And, and he's an elite athlete. Like Mike Tyson is 10 years older than George Foreman when he did that, and it's just not going to happen. Absolutely. Um, so I think if we move into, like we say, um, our feature of the episode, the the fights that should have happened. Now, just to, to give the listeners the kind of framework, what we're working with here. We've both decided on three fights. Uh, there was a multitude of options, of course, but we've chose on three fights. And we're going to follow a who, what, where, when kind of frame of who the fight was, where it was going to happen, why it didn't happen, and what might have happened should the fight have took place. Uh, of course, we're no experts, but we, we're just going to give our opinion on how the fight may have played out. Um, and then, you know, if our listeners agree or disagree, they can find us at Simbox on Twitter and let us know what they think. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure we'll get plenty of backlash for our picks and then our and who we think would have won. I'm sure all of these bouts have uh, lots of controversy built in them. I'm sure we'll get lots of controversy, but we like that. That's what we like, yeah. So just while we're here, you know, I'd like to mention that you can find Simbox across social media. We're on Twitter at Simbox. We're on Instagram at Sim underscore box, where you'll find our Insta live chats. Myself and you have been interviewing different 
people from across the boxing spectrum, trainers, boxers. We've got a couple of announcers taking part in interviews next week. Uh, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, uh, Simbox Boxing, and we're also now on Facebook, uh, Simbox Boxing on there as well. So it'd be really good if all our followers can interact with our different pages and you know, we're trying to cover as much of the social media spectrum as possible. Um, you can find Ewan at Rebel Boxing on Twitter and myself at Luke underscore Simbox. And you can follow all our social media activities and let us know any good or bad feedback. It's all welcome. Yeah, the good as well as the bad. We don't mind. <laughs> Absolutely. So I think the best way for this to work today, Ewan, what we'll do is I'll take a, a modern era fight that should have happened and then you can take your fight and then we'll go back and forth and we'll do one fight each at a time and uh, we can discuss the outcome of each fight as always I think your in-depth knowledge of the historical side of boxing will far outmatch mine but I'll do my best to kind of take in what you're saying and I'll, I'll build a an answer on the back of your information oh, okay sounds good so which fight are you going to lead with Luke the modern era fight that we uh, that we never got to see so I think we'll start with the man of the moment uh, the WBC heavyweight champion of the world Tyson Fury but going back to September of 2013, it was a totally different boxing world at that time. Um, Vladimir Klitschko was still firing away on top of the mountain. He was the the unified champion. Um, he was dominant, all dominant. He defeated uh, David Hay amongst other challengers. Um, and in September of 2013, we had Tyson Fiora versus David Hay in this fight was not just one that could have happened it's definitely one that should have happened this fight was announced we had a date of September 28th and then we had a rearranged date of February 8th 2014 so not only did we have this fight scheduled once it was scheduled twice and both times it fell through because of injuries to David Hay so just to give a bit of background to the fight going into a potential fight with Tyson Fury David Hay had knocked out Derek Chisora in July of 2012 this was 12 months before the scheduled Tyson Fury fight. So David Hayes notoriously inconsistent when it came to the heavyweight boxing. You know, he, he moved up from cruiserweight, he dominated at cruiserweight, and then he seemed to suffer a lot of injuries, you know, the, the eyes, the shoulders, um, the little toes, everything else. Um, so he, he defeated Derek Sorrow by knockout in July 2012 at the British Grudge match. Um, of course, everyone will remember that fight was was born out in Munich after Derek Chisora's challenge of Vitaly Klitschko for the WBC heavyweight title. Uh, the, the infamous brawl with David Hay led to the grudge match at Upton Park. Um, David Hay won that by knockout. And then he scheduled a bout with Manuel Char, which was actually going to take place in June of 2013. He pulled out of that fight as well. Then we got the announcement of a Tyson Fury fight, which for me at that time really grabbed my attention. Really, really excited to see this fight, you know. David Hay had been there, done that, got the T-shirt. And Tyson Fury was this extremely confident upstart. Uh, he was undefeated, very outspoken. And at that time, for me, he was arguably the only person that was capable of out-trash-talking David Hay. He was beating him at his own game at the press conference and stuff like that. Fury had come into the fight um, he, on the back of victories against Kevin Johnson, you know, the, the perennial uh, world title contender or gatekeeper. Uh, defeated him in December 2012 before going on to KO Steve Cunningham uh, on his American debut in April 2013. And this fight, I'm going to go back to when we think about the outcome of a possible David Hay Tyson Fury bout. The Steve Cunningham bout, uh, Tyson Fury, of course, was put down early before he went on to knock out Steve Cunningham. I think it was in the seventh round. It's quite a brutal knockout. Um, so that was kind of the background 
um, to the fight. What was your memories of the initial announcement, Ewan, of a possible David Haytas and Fury fight? I was, I was, um, I was, despite what people, people know me as now, somebody who lost faith in David Hay. I lost faith in him after the Vladimir Klitschko fight. I was, a, I was a fan up until that point, but his, his lackluster performance, I'd, I'd turned against him by this, this stage. And, uh, you know, obviously his, his little toe excuse was, um, was not one, not something that impressed me, but, um, I was excited because Tyson Fury was, he was the next big thing on the scene. And after his KO of Cunningham, which was impressive, and, you know, Hay seemed to be kind of back on track, knocking out Chisora. It was exciting. But like you say, the most exciting part of it was the needle and how good they were, both were talking. You know, they were both hype machines and they both were just, they knew how to sell a fight. And if, if Hay could sell a massive Upton Park show with Chisora, imagine what he could do with Fury. And I, I remember being excited about the fight. I thought it was a bit of a passing of the torch fight at British level. Obviously, with Fury being young, undefeated contender and Hay being kind of, you know, more moving towards the end of his career. I saw it as a kind of passing the torch fight, but I was excited. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that is the, the main thing. I think intrigue and excitement was the main feelings that I thought at the announcement. You know, I, I didn't see it coming. You know, I thought Hay would stick around for the big money fights and, you know, try and uh, get a rematch with Vladimir Klitschko or a possible fight with Vitaly Klitschko before his retirement. Obviously, those fights didn't happen. He was 33 years of age uh, at the time of the Tyson Fury fight. You know, 26 and 2. He'd only been defeated by Vladimir Klitschko and early on in his cruiserweight career by Kyle Thompson. Um, he was a former cruiserweight world champion, you know, unified cruiserweight world champion and a former WBA heavyweight champion. So he'd, he'd been at the top in two divisions. You know, he'd fought at a much higher level than Tyson Fury at that time. You know, and Tyson Fury's best win on his record was maybe the, the first Derek Chisora fight. So I think passing to the torch is a great term to use there. Um, I think for me at the time, I thought it was a couple of fights too early for Tyson Fury. But at the same time, such was his physical stature and his confidence. I really was intrigued to see how this fight would have played out. Um, we, of course, had the really entertaining press conferences. You know, the, these guys could talk for days, you know, never mind the boxing side of things, the, the, the born entertainers. And then they went into the ringside special, which again, just threw out one-liners and the needle was there, the back and forth was there and the appetite was was really building for this grudge match because it, it it was it seemed all business for Hay and for Fury it seemed like the biggest opportunity and he was grasping it with both hands um, and he was really trying his best to get under the skin of David Hay. Um, as it was a week before the original bout was due to take place on the 28th of September, uh, David Hay pulled out and now he pulled out with a cut under his eye, or above his eye, I should say. Um, he was quick to plaster the pictures over on social media. Um, you had the fledgling days of Twitter. Um, and it was quite a gruesome cut. Uh, and from what I've learned in the years uh, preceding the fight, um, was it was actually sparring with Philippe Hergovic. And it was Hergovic that caused the cut, you know, a young Hergovic that was in sparring, which I thought was quite an interesting um, fact. Yeah, absolutely. He had, he, had a, he had a killer's row in sparring for that fight because it was Deontay, Deontay Wilder and Philip Hergovic. So it's people who are now proving, well, Wilder's obviously proved, and then Hergovic is coming through now that they are, you know, elite level heavyweights. But no, the, my favourite line of all of it was Tyson Fury's, oh, I don't want to look at David Hay, he scares me. And, David, and, and he was giggling the whole time. It's like Tyson Fury has since proved that, you know, it's Tyson Fury's world and we're all just living in it. And I think 
as he joked around pretending to be scared of David Hay, I think David Hay was learning that he was living in Tyson Fury's world. And I, uh, as as much as he as I might catch this, I don't think I don't think David Hay ever had any intention of fighting Tyson Fury. Whoever cut him in sparring, I think that he was as soon as he got face to face and realised how big he was and how how totally unfazed he was by you know the aura of David Hay. I think he'd uh, started to second guess himself. If I'm honest. Yeah, I mean, it's the, this is the thing. It's going to always, until the end of time, throw up a lot of debate because we're just never going to know so simply because the fight didn't happen, you know, and, and whether somebody thinks David A would blow Fury out in three rounds back then or whether they think Tyson Fury just had his number, we'll never know, unfortunately. And one of the, to go along the lines of what you just mentioned there, Ewan, uh, Peter Fiora, uh, he simply said, I said all along it wasn't going to happen. He simply had no confidence in David Hay making it to the ring to fight Peter Fury's nephew, his trainer at the time, Tyson Fury, he had no confidence in the the fact that David Hay would make it to the ring, and he was he was very notorious at the time for not making it into the ring for certain bouts, which is an awful shame. Yeah, absolutely, but he proved it later on as well. He pulled out of was it one or two Bellevue fights, and then the first one where he got injured, his body was breaking down at this point. He was, you know, he was a great cruiserweight champion, and he was one of Britain's best ever amateurs. But he'd had a long, long career at this point. Starting boxing very young, he, his body was starting to break down. He couldn't maintain the high intensity training that he used to when he was young, and he proved that later on. And he was proving it then that his body wasn't up to being an elite level heavyweight. And this was the first chink. These two cancel fights were the first time we saw it. And I think that I think that that's undis- undoubtable now that, that his body wasn't able to cope with what it used to be able to cope with. Yeah, definitely. And coming up against a giant um, in Tyson Fury, you know, six foot nine, he was twenty four years of age. So he, he was, you know, he was full of energy. He, he was he was desperate for that big fight. And like you say, maybe maybe there was something there, David Hay, that he's seen in in Tyson Fury that he couldn't shake this man. He couldn't put the fear in him. He couldn't match him in any kind of way and maybe he thought you know it's best just to kind of live another day um as it is i've got a, a really uh funny quote from tyson fury um you know he's, he's brilliant with the one-liners and any kind of trash talk uh he, you know he's, he's must see tv whether it's on camera in a press conference you know or his own instagram these days with his, his workouts with his wife paris fury but the the quote that i've got he says, and this was in between the bouts. So it was after the first one had been cancelled and just as the, the second cancelled bout was being rescheduled. So he says, I'm so glad to have this fight rescheduled. In my opinion, he's a classless prima donna and a diva. A no good wannabe Bollywood actor. And I can't wait to put him in his place. There's lots of honest, hardworking people in this world. And I believe I'm going to punish and poleaxe this money-grabbing crybaby for all of them. He's getting knocked spark out. I already didn't like Mr. Zedler's celebrity, Queen of the Jungle. He's getting sorted out. My actions will speak louder than my words. His words certainly speak loud in their own right. He was a brilliant trash talker then, as he is now. Yeah, so it's a fantastic quote. And to, and to mirror that, the quote that I took down from David Hay, um, and this was after the, the, the bouts were completely scrapped. And it really left like a, a sour, bitter taste in my mouth towards David Hay when the second fight was cancelled. And you just thought, you know, you give him the benefit of the doubt for the Manuel Char fight. Uh, you give him the benefit of the doubt for the, four, the first Tyson Fury fight. And at this point, I was a big fan of David Hay. Um, his quote, uh, I genuinely believed the shoulder injury wasn't that bad, but the doctor sent me for a detailed MRI scan. And within 24 hours, um, 
within 48 hours, I was in the operating theatre. The boxing gods keep hinting that maybe enough is enough and that it's time to finally hang up my gloves. So this is going back to 2013. He, he, you know, he was considering, well, his goal was to retire. Was at the age of 30? He always said he would be retired um, at 30. So he'd already gone back on that once. This is now at the age of 33. He was saying, maybe I should retire now. And of course, something that we'll go on to in a second, he was to make a comeback again in 2016. Um, so it was it was difficult just to know what to take serious from David Hay, you know. Um, maybe he's just unfortunate with injuries, but it was happening on such a regular, frequent basis that it, it, it was hard not to feel like a little bit bitter that these fights wasn't happening. Yeah, absolutely. Like I say, I think I think Hayes, I think Hayes, I think Hayes was done in 2012. You know what I mean? Chisora wasn't after that Chisora fight. He just walked away, and he never ever got his heart into a single fight after that. And it, it proved that when he took on a decent fighter in Tony Bellew, who was a good, you know, a good cruiserweight, he's moved up to heavyweight. He got absolutely exposed, and it's because his body couldn't do it anymore. And you know what I mean? I, I think that the last fight we would have liked to see was this one because it would have seen what he had left against the ta- an up-and-coming Tyson Fury. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, to finish with, you know, I'm going to, I'm not going to be an after-timer, you know, it'd be really easy to sit here and say, you know, I believe Tyson Fury was this big monster back then uh, because of what he's achieved now. Um, but for me, at 24 years of age, he was 21 and 0. Um, he'd been slightly troubled by a smaller man in Steve Cunningham, um, just the fight before this scheduled fight with Tyson Fury. And I'm going to be completely honest, and I'm going to give you my prediction that I thought at the time, going way back to 2013. When this fight was originally made, I thought Hay was still an elite operator. Even though, you know, I'm going to go back on what I said about the injuries and stuff, I still thought if he'd gotten that ring in 2013, you would have knocked out Tyson Fury. And this is not to take away from Tyson Fury, I just think it was the wrong time. He was 24 years of age, he was, he was gangly, he wasn't, he didn't have his man strength, if you like. You know, you look at him in the ring now and he's, He's a beast. He uses every ounce of his attributes. And I just didn't think he was capable of performing at 24 years of age as he is now at 31. You know, he's in his physical prime. And I just think David Hay was on his last legs of being an elite fighter and he would have still, in 2013, had enough. And I think he would have knocked out Tyson Fury within six rounds. That's only my opinion. I'm prepared for the backlash. But I'm not going to be an after-timer and take the easy route of saying Tyson Fury of today would beat David Hay, which I think he would. Back then, 2013, David Hay for me knocks out Tyson Fury within six rounds. It's bold, it's bold, it's bold. I like it. I like how bold and how confident you are, but I have absolutely none of your shared confidence. I don't I think that I don't think I, I'm gonna take it just as much heat because I don't think David Hay has ever been an elite heavyweight. I think I think anybody worth his salt would have beaten value ever. I think most decent heavyweights would have stopped him. I think John Ruiz was shot and John Ruiz was never any good. Audley Harrison was a joke and Vladimir Klitschko took him to school. I think that Tyson Fury, even at 24, even at 21, I think Tyson Fury is too big, too strong, too powerful, too quick. I don't think David Hay is big enough or and I don't think he's I don't think he's skillful enough to to get find those big guys. Anyone that moves, anyone that moved on him. Tony Bellew was too fast for him, and I know that's later on, but Tony Bellew was too fast and too slick for him. And I just think that Tyson Fury, even when he was young, is he's how how many shades better is even a young Tyson Fury than Tony Bellew? And how many shades better was Hay? We don't know. But 
I think that Tyson Fury at any stage has a beating of David Hay at heavyweight. At cruiserweight, David Hay was an animal. But at heavyweight, I never see it. I can't, I can't envisage it. And it might be a time in seeing all the things that Tyson Fury's done, but I personally, I can't in my mind, I imagine any version of David Hay being any version of Tyson Fury. You know, that's the brilliant thing with boxing is that, you know, we've all got opinions. Um, unfortunately, with fights that should have happened, we're obviously talking about things in the past and we're just not going to see these fights. And that's the frustrating thing is that we're not going to get a, a definitive answer to this. Um, and that's the beautiful beautiful thing about debating boxing. Um, you know, we're going to agree to disagree. We could spend the whole episode debating just this one fight. But yeah, that's my first fight. Uh, it's 20th of September, 2013. The fight that should have happened David Hay versus Tyson Fury. It's a great one, and it's obviously inspired some controversy. So uh, to mirror that controversy, I'll take you back to 1992. And a man, flat, a man, an enormous behemoth of a man, Rinnick Bowe, stood above a trash can with his manager, Rock Newman, throwing a WBC belt into the trash and saying, if Lennox wants it, he can go and dig in the trash. The fight is obviously Lennox Lewis versus Riddick Bowe in 1992. There was a heavyweight tournament, four fighters, Lennox Lewis, Donovan Razor Ruddick, Evander Holyfield and Riddick Bowe to go ahead for a four-man tournament where Lewis would fight Ruddick, Bowe would fight Holyfield and then the winners would fight. Obviously, the first fight, Riddick Bowe puts an absolute clinic on Evander Holyfield in what is a, a beautiful war. It's the start of one of the best trilogies in heavyweight history. And then Lewis demolishes Ruddick in... Uh, in East London. Um, and basically, we have the setup for what would be one of the best heavyweight tournament finals ever. And yet, Razor Ruddock, not, not Razor Ruddock, um, Riddick Bow just decides, no, I'm not having it. I want to throw my belt in the trash and I'm going to make Lennox Lewis go and get it. Um, that is basically the story of. Riddick, Bo, and Lennox Lewis, and how it didn't come together when it should have done. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, with this fight, um, in the modern era, if we ever speak about fights that should and could have happened, you know, for instance, Deontay Wilder versus Anthony Joshua, and they was both undefeated, and they was both world champions, um, and it's always compared to uh, Riddick, Bo, and, and Lennox Lewis, you know, to say, this fight should happen, let's not have another Bo Lewis um, and when another fight doesn't happen that should happen, let's not have another Paul Lewis. And I think it's it's almost took like a an infamous standing within the boxing world now with this is what could happen if a certain fight doesn't happen at the right time. Um, and of course, like the fight should have happened. Um, unfortunately, it didn't. It's the like you say, it's the blueprint for skullduggery in uh, business dealings. So HBO at the time offered thirty two million dollars to try and make this fight happen. Uh, and Rock Newman, who was Riddick Bowe's manager, off, tried to offer Lennox Lewis three million pounds, which makes it a, three million dollars even, which makes it a ninety ten split in favour of Riddick Bowe. Uh, and then, as a counter offer, Frank Maloney offered a winner takes all thirty two million dollar fight, and he faxed uh, he faxed Rock Newman the contract for a winner takes all thirty two million dollar fight as a publicity stunt, and he never got a reply. It's, like you say, it's become synonymous, you know, these two kind of little tiny men with these giants by their side doing these kind of 
big publicity stunts and dodgy dealings with Frank Maloney and Lennox Lewis and Rock Newman and Riddick Bowe, it'd become the kind of the blueprint for, you know, the Eddie Hearns and the Shelley Finkels of this world doing it exactly the same later on, like you say. It's, it, is, it is kind of the archetypal boxing pantomime of heavyweights not wanting to fight each other. Absolutely. And it's just, you know, there's no other word other than frustration. You know, when you see that this fight is so close to happening, you know, and all these questions are going to be answered, you know, and you just want that definitive answer. So one man can progress with his career and the other man, you know, may consider retirement or may just rebuild. Um, you know, there's, like you say, the, it was it was the prelude for, for the now norm of, of boxing promoters overriding the opinion of, of fighters. You know, it's, we're so often seeing now Eddie Hearn and Frank Warren uh, bickering, uh, Shelley Finkel, and 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 whatnot, all getting involved with each other, whether it be on interviews on social media channels and and all these different things. And this was like you said, this was almost like the, the ground zero for, for for that beginning. Um, and like I said, he was such small men these promoters, and there was giant heavyweights that also by him. And yeah, the fight just didn't materialize. Yeah, so obviously we we all know it should have happened, and it, it, and why it didn't. Obviously there was. A bit of a bit of kind of publicity on both sides as to why it didn't happen. But in terms of the fight itself, they did actually face each other in the 1988 Olympic final, and uh, Lennox Lewis stopped him, uh, stopped Riddick Bowe in two rounds to claim his gold medal for his, the nation he was representing at the time, Canada. Uh, so obviously, Bowe always said he wanted revenge for that fight, and uh, Lewis wanted to make sure put a rubber stamp on it in the professionals and uh, win all the titles back against the man he'd already beaten. So I think that gives us kind of a basis for how that fight might have gone, obviously with them taking taking each other on in the amateurs. But uh, how do you think that fight would have played out had they met in 1992 or three? Um, from my opinion, I'm always going to side with Lennox Lewis, you know. Um, it's, it's a bit of a, a love-hate relationship with Lewis. And um, given that I think, you know, with certain fights in his career could have happened at better times, but he is for me the greatest heavyweight uh, of British boxing. Um, in the early dances, um, I think, I think, like you say, the the previous bout in the in the amateurs would have would have been like a prelude for for the fight in the in the professional ranks. Although it's a totally different game, I just think uh, Lennox would have knocked him out. Um, yeah, I'm always going to say with Lennox Lewis in a potential fight with Riddick Bowe. Yeah, I How about yourself? I agree that that would be the consensus, and I do think I do think that the the sensible money, so to speak, is on Lennox Lewis. He was he was very very good, but at the same time, I think Riddick Bowe is one of the all time underrated heavyweights because he, he his prime was so short because of the abuse that he gave his body through food and alcohol and other things. Um, his prime was so short, but in nineteen ninety two when he beat Evander Holyfield, that was his prime, and he was a devastating force to be reckoned with. I'm not saying he would win because of how good Lennox Lewis was and how proficient he was as a boxer, but Riddick Bowe was enormous and he had a brilliant jab and he was physically imposing and he could he could he really is he could work a ring IQ. He knew when to fight, he knew when to take a round off, and he was absolutely dangerous at this time. And again, I think it would have been a very very close affair. I think you might have had a trilogy out of it. You know, one goes one way, one goes the other. I, but. Again, I, I agree the sensible money is, is on Lennox Lewis. And of course, I would have, you know, the British fight, fight fan, of course, I would have wanted Lewis to win. But yeah, Riddick Bowe was a very, very dangerous opponent in the early 1990s. Yeah, most definitely. And again, you know, we look at fighters of this era and we just think, <laughs> let's not have that again. Like a, 
especially after such a, a bad period with the coronavirus. And, and this could be another form of inspiration to make sure the best fight the best um, and then look no further than, than Lennox Lewis and Riddick Bowe. Um, so for my next fight and on the list of fights that should have happened, we go back to the modern era, of course. Um, and this is the fight that kind of, without being an aftertimer, it looked a better prospect um, uh, of the fight uh, looking back. Uh, so let's go back to 2014. Uh, Carl Froch had just knocked out George Groves. I think it was in front of 80,000 people. I'm not too sure at Wembley. Um, and at this point, his IBF mandatory challenger was James DeGale. Um, for me, this potential fight could have took place. It was mooted to take place in October of 2014 at the O2 Arena. And I just think, similar to the David Hay Tyson Fury fight, uh, this was all about timing and whether or not that James DeGale was physically ready for someone of, of Carl Froch's experience and stature and ability. Um, of course, like we mentioned earlier, Froch had just come off the two Groves fights. He was at the peak of his powers. You know, he was in the autumn of his career. You know, he was 36, 37 years of age. Um, but he, he was as good as he's ever been. You know, he, he beat Kessler in the second fight, uh, you know, after losing the first. Um, and I think at this point in 2014, Carl Froch was, was looking for one more fight. You know, he... He always mentioned about you know getting up for a fight and self motivation, and he just wanted that one big fight. And of course, it was scheduled to be uh, Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. in Las Vegas. Carl Froch had this this dream of having his his name up in lights, but then there was James DeGale on the domestic scene. Did he want to go through another domestic grudge match uh, after the mind games and the back and forth for for such a long time with George Groves? And the interesting thing for me with this fight, Ewan, is that it was actually mentioned, uh, I don't know if it was the first mention of it, but when I look back and done a little bit of research, back in 2012, uh, before the Lucian Butte fight, uh, Steve Bunce, he was in a column for ESPN, and he said the ideal fight to make in 2012 is Carl Froch versus James DeGale. Now, I think if we go back that far, that's before the, the Kessler rematch, before the Butte rematch, you know, the career-defining win. Uh, it was before the, the, the two fights with George Groves. I think it's, it's an unbelievable thought to think that in 2012 it could have potentially happened. You know, uh, I think 2014 was the optimum time for this fight. You know, James DeGale was brought over to Matchroom. Uh, he fought on the undercard of Carl Froch, George Groves too. Uh, he won in impressive fashion. He knocked out Brandon Gonzalez. He was undefeated at the time. He was 18-0. I think he had one draw on his record. Um, an interesting fact with that fight is Brandon Gonzalez never boxed again after James DeGale knocked him out in four rounds. He was 18-0. He lost for the first time and he's not boxed since. Um, James DeGale was a slick, uh, a slick boxer, really slippery. Carl Froch was a warrior, of course. I just think it was a great clash of styles. James Gale was a European champion, only lost once. Uh, of course, there's George Groves. And I just think at, at 2014, the back end of 2014, maybe we should have seen this fight. Uh, what's your thoughts on a potential Carl Froch versus James DeGale fight, Ewan? It's a hard one for me because is, is James DeGale anywhere near as good as Carl Froch was at his prime? Not a chance. I think that prime versus prime, like we talk about, I think Carl Froch smashes into bits in about six rounds. I don't think he, I don't think Absolutely. James DeGale would have had anything to offer him at a prime Carl Froch. The Froch to be, you know, Taylor or Butte. But 
at this time, like you say, Carl Froch was going after a massive payday, and all it was like, he just, you know, he fought in front of, uh, I forget how many at Wembley. Uh, and he and he'd, he he was looking for like you say he wanted he wanted the like a Bernard Hopkins or a Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. like you mentioned he wanted a big fight and he wasn't he wasn't around for domestic level opponents anymore he shut George Groves up and then that was it I think that had that fight been made it might have been more dangerous because that is for me the peak of James DeGale right before he fought Andre Durrell but. Yeah. To you know, to fight a dangerous slick counterfighter when your head's not really in it is a very dangerous thing to do, because you know we've seen a lot of people who go on too long, take an easy challenge, not really take them seriously, because you know they're the older champion. They, you know I can I can beat this guy with one hand tied behind my back, and then they come and you know offer a really a slippery performance. I think that that if that fight had come together, I think uh, you know James DeGale could well have you know been negative, slippery, and really made a horrible night for Carl Froch. But like I say, I would still back even an older Carl Froch to do the job, just because I think that I think that at his best, Carl Froch can beat a lot of you know any super middleweight in the world nearer. Really, I think he does. I think he has a good goal with anyone. I even think yeah, absolutely. I even think he could, you know, give Joe Calzaghe a hard fight. Obviously, I don't back him to win it, but Cal Froch gives everyone a hard fight. So I would still back Froch in that, but I think taking it in late 2014 would have been a very dangerous thing to do for Cal Froch. Yeah, definitely. So a quote um, from Cal Froch, not too long after the fight with George Groves, um, and this was speaking about a potential fight with James DeGale. Now, Carl uh, Froch says, um, that is very much on the table. Very much so. The only reason we'd be discussing it is because De Gale has put himself in a mandatory position. To be honest, otherwise, I wouldn't give him the time of day. So it just goes to show there that if he had to fight him, he would, but he wouldn't go out of his way to, to give James De Gale the time of day. And I, I think this is down to the fact that George Groves beat James De Gale, Carl Froch beat George Groves, so therefore Carl Froch sees no reason to box James DeGale at that point, unless he's put in the mandatory position, like he says, and he has to box him. Exactly. That's that's what makes the fight interesting and dangerous because, like I say, I think we both agree that the more skilled operator, the harder puncher, the bigger, stronger man is Carl Froch. But it's the psychological element of he doesn't really want to fight him. He doesn't really want to take on a, a domestic opponent at the O2. He wants a big fight. And if he was forced to take that fight, you know, would he have underestimated DeGale, who, you know, is a very, very good fighter, shouldn't be underestimated by anyone. It's That's that's yeah, where the intrigue lies for me. Yeah, and given, you know, James Gale was always very outspoken. He was a very, very confident boxer. Um, and he always backed his ability. You know, he went on to say... Uh, of a potential fight with Carl Froch. His attributes are that he's strong, he's tough, he's got a good engine, a good chin, and I have so much respect for what he's achieved in boxing, but I am all wrong for him. My movement and speed would drive him mad. I'm technically so much better than him. Is James DeGale technically a better boxer than Carl Froch? Yes. Would that have been enough? Highly debatable. Um, but James DeGale was always going to back himself. You know, even after the loss to George Groves, he was still a very confident boxer. Um, and, you know, a, an old adage in boxing, you know, it's overused cliche, styles make fights. And that is the one thing that James Gale would have hung his hat on going into a fight with Carl Froch is that my style is all wrong, you know. And again, we're never going to know definitively, but maybe, maybe Carl Froch would have still had enough in the tank at that point. 
but it's a great fight, a great potential fight. Now, moving forward, um, obviously the fight with George Groves the second time took place in May of 2014. Uh, Kyle Froch didn't actually retire until, I think it was 12 or 13 months later. He's still looking at that career ending payday, you know, be against Javis Jr., Bernard Hopkins, as you mentioned. I think there was even talk of a a potential uh, fight with Gennady Golovkin, who was steamrolling everybody at that point at middleweight and was going to be a catchweight. Um, and I just don't think that the DeGale fight sold itself to Carl Froch as it was in February 2015, uh, a little while before his retirement, but after the George Groves fight, you know, about eight months after. Carl Froch, he relinquished the IBF title saying that DeGale wouldn't get him out of bed and didn't make business or financial sense. So he vacated the IBF title. So that when the fight was put to him, you know, he previously said, I'd take him on as a manager challenger if I have to. He then went on to give up that IBF title. You know, Maybe at that point he, he was punting the seed for retirement. Maybe he thought he didn't need the IBF title to go and chase a Las Vegas headlining fight. But the facts are he gave up the title rather than face his manager challenger in James DeGale. And that was in February 2015. Um, do you ever look at this, Ewan, and think maybe he's seen something? You know, Carl Froch is, is uber confident. He's never going to admit that he's got a chink in his arm and that somebody else could exploit. But do you think subconsciously he might have looked at James Gale and thought, you know, he's, if you like, he's almost like a poor man's Andre Ward. You know, I'm never going to compare Ward and DeGale, but in terms of style, you know, that almost like uh, defence first kind of style. Uh, do you think that there might have been something there where subconsciously, you know, he'd never admitted it publicly, that he just didn't fancy the DeGale fight? I think Carl Froch's career was done the second he landed that big right hand and, uh, in front of 80,000 at Wembley because he keeps mentioning it, so am I. I think that... Um... I think yeah. that I think that was his career done, and like I say, I think I think he thought, you know, I'm an hard bastard. I can take on somebody at Las Vegas. I win, I lose. It doesn't matter. I've made a lot of money, and my career's over. I don't think boxing people like DeGale, boxing mandatory challenges, was ever in his. I think the talk of a big fight was only ever for the money. I think he was done as a fighter and a competitor when he beat George Groves. He, you know, he, he closed the lick, the guy that was tormenting him. I think that from the second he landed that punch, he was done. I don't think he ever seriously considered James DeGale. I think he was, like I say, it was it was a big payday for the end, you know, against somebody who he knew he could beat, you know, an aged Bernard Hopkins or a, a useless Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. Um, I think that that was all he ever wanted. I don't think, ever, I don't think like I say, we talk about the fight and how good it would have been, and it could have been very good, but I don't think Cal Froch was ever interested in competitive fights. I think he was interested in the money after that. I think as a gladiator, as a competitor, he was done with George Groves. Yeah, I'm very inclined to agree with you there. I think in terms of the actual fight, you know, to come up prediction on the fight, um, I see Cal Froch and James Gale being quite competitive earlier on. I think Froch walks him down, constantly walking down, putting pressure on. Uh, you know, using his jab very well, um, and I just don't think DeGale's got the the power to ever hurt Froch. You know, Froch's notoriously got one of the best chins in British boxing history. You know, you could hit that guy with a lump hammer, and he'd keep walking forward. And I just think the sheer pressure of being walked down, um, very similar in a way to the actual last fight of DeGale's career. You know, I know it's many years later, but the way Eubank just outworked him. You know, Eubank is nowhere near as talented as James DeGale, but he caught him at the right time. And I kind of see that kind of game plan for Kyle Froch in a much more emphatic fashion. 
the, the, the high intensity pressure, walking him down, the punches having no effect from De Gea on Froch. Um, and Froch wear him down, and I think he'd stop him late. I think he'd, he'd stop James De Gea uh, between 10 and 12. I think the referee would stop him on his feet. I come to the same conclusion, but in a bit of a more roundabout way. I think that, I think that Carl Froch wouldn't have been up for that fight. I think he would have been a bit lacklustre. And I think he probably would have found De Gea hard to find for the first five or six rounds and got get, got more and more frustrated uh, at not being able to find him, not being able to hit him, and then just switched up into a gear that De Gea didn't have later on. I think De Gea wins four, five, maybe even six rounds of that fight, just being slippery and elusive and spoiling the way Ward did. But then an aged Frotch just gets annoyed and goes, what's this little upstart doing in my ring? And finds him later on. I think that Carl Frotch had a knack of doing that. And he did it in the first, uh, the first Groves fight. Obviously, it was stopped early, but... He, he, he was getting annoyed at the fact he was losing rounds and eventually he did just close the gap on him and just start throwing hell for leather. And I think I don't think De Gale would have been able to live when Frotch got annoyed. I think he would have, uh, like you say, succumbed in the later rounds, 8, eight to 12, something like that. Just been outworked and out-hustled in a, in a barrage of punches from a, an annoyed Carl Frotch. Absolutely. So yeah, just to add like a, a little... Asterix to this conversation. You know, James Gale, of course, went on to win the vacant IBF strap. You know, the brilliant unanimous decision win against Andre Durrell. You know, I remember watching that fight and I was really, really proud of James Gale. You know, he went on to become the first British Olympic gold medalist to win a world title. Um, and then in 2015, late 2015, rumours circulated about Froch coming back again. You know, and, and this is something we're getting used to in the modern era, but Kyle Froch. He's always very opinionated on what he could still do or what he would have done in his prime, you know. And he looked back uh, late 2015, you know, he, he's only just retired. And he said an easy night's work would be a James DeGale fight. You know, he could go back, win his IBF world title back, be world champion and retire, having beat James DeGale. Of course, the fight didn't happen. And looking at in, in you know, today's boxing world, Carl Froch still mentions. Um, fighting Joe Calzaga, um, you know he's always said that he was too big, too strong for Gennady Golovkin, and he's always very opinionated on fights that could have happened, should have happened, didn't happen, and he's always going to back himself. But I just think that sometimes, you know, he, he should be more satisfied with what he did achieve rather than what he could have added to his record because he. He is one of the best British boxers of the modern generation. You know, in, in terms of my lifetime, he's he maybe top three, definitely top five. And I just don't think he needs to look back on opportunities missed. You know, maybe it's the, the Joe Calzaghe situation, the fact that he never got that fight. Maybe that plays around in his mind a little bit, but I just think he needs to be content. Maybe he is content. Maybe it's just his outsp- outspoken personality and the fact that he likes to debate mythical matchups. But he always, you know, even when James Gale retired, Carl Frotch wished him well, and then he also added, but I would have smashed him had we fought. So just, you know, just be content, be happy, wish somebody well, and move on. I, I think that's an interesting point about fighter psychology generally, because Carl Frotch had a brilliant way out. He, 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 you know, he fought in the biggest stage, knocked out his arch rival with one of the best punches, you know, one of the cleanest right hands you'll ever see. And then he retired, and that's the perfect retirement. But most fighters come back and they try and they try, you know, the greatest, Sugar Ray Robinson, Sugar Ray Leonard, Muhammad Ali, they all waited until they lost the fighters who had, they had no business losing to because they couldn't give it up. And that fighter mentality, if I can always have one more, I can always have one more. I'd prefer to listen to Carl Froch drone on forever about, I could have had one more, I could have beat Calzaghe, I could have done this, could have done that, than him go back in and get hurt. 
because the great fighters go back in and get hurt because they can't give it up. I'd rather than I'd rather they talk about it and didn't do it than didn't talk and went and did it and ended up getting hurt because we've seen too many great fighters go back in and get hurt. And I've talked about this. I, I often hear, you know, who should come back? Should it be Andre Ward? No, nobody should come back. If you've given it up once, you should give it up because all of the greatest fighters, all of the best fighters, you know, Willie Pep, Gene Tony, they all had a, had another go and didn't look their best. Absolutely. So, moving on, uh, the second fight uh, of your three fights, what we decided on this time, you and... This is one that anyone that anyone that follows my Twitter or anyone that knows me knows I bang on about permanently, which is uh, Jack Dempsey versus Harry Rose. So, to understand this fight, you've got to go back to uh, John L. Sullivan, the inaugural heavyweight champion, uh, and what was known as the colour line. So, obviously, the world in... The early 20th century was a very, very racially segregated place and a very racist place. And uh, John L. Sullivan said, famously, I, I won't ever fight a black person. And that became known as the colour line. He drew the line in the sand about colour and basically said that the, a black person will never be allowed to fight for the heavyweight championship of the world. So this was held up for many years through through Corbett and Fitzsimmons and uh, up until the era of Tommy Burns. And then Tommy Burns, again, he tried to uphold it. He fought several defences of, of his world heavyweight title before Jack Johnson finally caught with him in Australia and uh, beat him, knocked him out. But before he was allowed, the referee was allowed to count to 10, the police stopped the fight because they couldn't uh, allow a black man to win by knockout. But the referee awarded the knockout to Johnson anyway. And then we move on another 10 years after Johnson has been dethroned by Jess Willard. And then Jess Willard's been dethroned by Jack Dempsey. And the colour bar is very much back in place. Uh, because Jack Johnson caused so much controversy during his reign that, you know, the white boxing establishment were like, we can't have another black champion. OK, so we get to the generation where they have what's called the coloured heavyweight title. Obviously, not a very PC term now, but that's the, PC, that's the term that they used. And great fighters like Langford, Jeanette, McVeigh, Johnson would all fight for this several times after. And they would kind of pass it around, earn each other some money. Uh, but out of this, out of those competitive fights, there came the dominant guy, the, the best coloured heavyweight in the world as it was known then, uh, and that was Harry Wills. He was a big, big fella, and he, he managed to beat he beat Langford, he beat McVeigh, he beat Jeanette, he beat all of the best heavyweights that weren't called Jack Dempsey. And as Jack Dempsey had time off and time off, Harry Wills was the number one contender. In 1922, the, uh, the Ring magazine did a national poll, the, well, the kind of the, the nebulous Ring magazine as it was then, did a national poll on who should fight for the heavyweight title, and uh, Harry Wills came out as a 90% winner. And it, uh, yet, Dempsey still refused to fight him. Yeah, so like, with, with the historical side of boxing, um, I've garnered so much more knowledge than what I initially had through going through uh, your fabulous Throwback Thursday series. Um, and, you know, looking at fighters like Jack Dempsey, Jack Johnson, um, fighters that I wouldn't necessarily have... have took notice of something because, you know, the, the, the time span and, and the footage and stuff like that is is, is difficult to, to keep up with so many different aspects of boxing. You know, you're truly blessed in, in the, the fact that you have such superb boxing knowledge. Um, but looking back, you know, and one of the things that I have really picked up on 
um, since discussing historical boxing myself is the the racial elements of boxing. You know, it's it's, it's absolutely absurd to think you know the police was involved in the Jack Johnson fight. You know what what a great fighter Jack Johnson was, and that you know he, he was almost stopped by the police from winning by knockout because he had knocked out a white gentleman and he was black and. Yeah, the racial element to, to to things is absolutely absurd. Uh, in the modern era, it's you know it's almost alien to can to actually conceive that this this was the state of play um, in, in in history. You know, it's it's shameful, it's wrong, um, and you know, luckily we as a as a human race, we we we're not completely out of the woods, but it's progressed much more than what it was back then. Yeah, when you read about these, you know, these great fighters being denied their opportunity to fight in an athletic contest simply because of the colour of their skin, it's, it, it becomes, it does show you how far we have come. Obviously, there's still a long way to go. I'm sure we can all agree on that. But the world of the 1920s and the, the golden era of boxing, as it was called, with, you know, Eugene Tunney's and Jack Dempsey and Louis Furpo, um, you know, that, that should have been the golden era of Harry Wills because he was... Honestly, if you watch his footage, he was the first modern heavyweight. He was long, he used his jab, he could clinch, he could throw uppercuts. So, you know, watch a lot of the old fights and the, the uppercuts, they don't throw them as well as you do now. Jack, Harry Wills is the first guy that you watch and he dips and he sits right up on his uppercut. He was the first modern heavyweight fighter and yet he was never allowed to fight Jack Dempsey, who was the reigning champion. And for me, I have no doubt that it would have been a great fight, but I have no doubt that Harry Wills would have won that fight. He was too big, too strong, too powerful, too intelligent. He had every attribute that caused... So he was twi- He was a lot bigger than Gene Tunney, and yet he was just as good a boxer as Gene Tunney. He had every attribute to beat Jack Dempsey. He was the perfect fighter in the world. He was, he was 10, 20 years ahead of his time, and he was never allowed to prove it in the ring. And that is why I can't let a fight that should have happened series go by without talking about how good Harry Wills was and how unjust it was that he had his title shot robbed from him. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm not going to be in a position to to argue with your assessment of the fight. Um, I think uh, this could even be, you know, a a great article moving forward for your throwback series and really dissect you know, how, why, where and when this fight could have and should have happened. Um, it's something that I'm going to look into myself because, you know, I'm really intrigued by it. But yeah, I, I can only second your assessment given uh, your far superior knowledge on the, on the topic. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> Almost definitely when it comes to the, the historical side of things, you know, I'm uh, st- still a baby in terms of learning. Well, there's lots to learn. <laughs> Yeah, that's the fascinating thing about being a boxing fan. You can never sit back and say, I know everything. There's always a fighter, there's always a, an upcomer, there's always a, a fighter of a, an era gone by that you can pick up a book or, you know, with YouTube nowadays and, and go and delve into and lose yourself in, in so many different aspects of such a, a wonderful Absolutely. sport. Absolutely, and someone who was a, a Dempsey scholar, someone like Mike Tyson, who we talked about earlier, is an absolute scholar of Jack Dempsey and he knew every fight and every move he could probably explain to me why I'm absolutely wrong about that and you know unfortunately we'll never know but there are there is always the argument and it's always worth talking about yeah most definitely so um, we'll move into the, the final chapter on my side of the fights that should have happened um, this is a notoriously discussed fight um, I was I was close to leaving it out and replacing it with something else given that it's discussed so much but it's the fight that I've wanted to see most as a boxing fan. Um, arguably, during my lifetime, you know, there's not been two other fighters 
that I've wanted to put together for such a long time. Uh, this fight was first discussed uh, way back in 2012. There was now an infamous episode of Ringside where both men were sat side by side. Uh, ironically enough, they were separated at one point by Alder Harrison. Of course, I'm making reference to Amir Khan versus Kell Brook. Yeah, you can't mention you can't mention uh, fights that should have happened without talking about these two. How long has this been going on for now? Eight years, nine years. Yeah, absolutely, eight years. And what what I've tried to do, rather than cover the the whole eight years and keep us here until Christmas, I've tried narrowing it down to a, a section of time when this fight would have been at its absolute peak. Uh, the date that I've chose would have been the thirtieth of May, two thousand and fifteen, and this was the night Kelbrook defeated Frankie Gavin. Now, at the same time, uh, Amir Khan had boxed um, over in America. Uh, he defeated uh, Devin Alexander, the former IBF world champion. Uh, it was an absolute masterclass by Amir Khan when he defeated uh, Devin Alexander. And given that Brooke was the world champion and he was in his own country, you know, he was at the O2 Arena in London and he defeated Frank Gavin, it just goes to show um, the levels that these guys were competing at at that time. So just to give a bit of uh, meat to the bones, if you like, like we said, it was the infamous episode of Ringside. Khan was quick to tell Brooke that he wasn't on his level. You know, he's very similar in age. I think there's a matter of months between them. But in terms of boxing ability, if you look back, Khan was in the the Olympics. Kel Brook obviously never made it. And there was talk of, of a, a sparring session where Khan sparring, Kel Brook turns up, uh, he's full of beans, he's bouncing around the place. And in Khan's words... He spars with Amir Khan, then he stops bouncing around and he goes to being this quiet, subdued character. You know, Amir Khan's always going to be very outspoken and confident and, and critical of Kelbrook. Kelbrook obviously disputed this. Um, and then that's where the, the fanfare for a potential fight really started to gather pace. Um, if we move into 2013, um, you know, at this point, Amir Khan, again, he's operating at a much higher level uh, than than. Kelbrook, you know, he, he fought the likes of Marcus Maidana, um, which was a fantastic win, uh, not being an aftertimer, but that fight looks so much better now, given the trouble Maidana gave uh, Adrian Broner in defeating him, and the trouble that he gave uh, Floyd Mayweather um, in the two fights. Amir Khan dropped him in the first, uh, survived an onslaught in the late rounds to win on points. You know, he fought Malinaji, Devin Alexander, as I mentioned, Zab Judah. Um, he was, you know, multi-time world champion and had a few defences of the world titles. Um, at the same time, Kelbrook too would have been 29. He was 34-0, but of course he'd not fought the opposition that Khan had. Um, the standout performances um, on his record at that time, he, he defeated Matthew Hatton, Carson Jones, and then he moves into that career-defining fight. Amir Khan was always quick to tell Kelbrook, fight somebody of note before fighting me. Almost earned the fight, if you like. And I always found this quite interesting because the stance that Amir Khan was taking on a, on a, a potential Kell Brook fight was very similar to how Floyd Mayweather spoke about Amir Khan getting a fight with Floyd Mayweather. Uh, and it was Floyd Mayweather looking down on Amir Khan and Amir Khan in turn was looking down on Kell Brook. Um, Amir Khan was adamant that he wanted to get this this big money-spinning fight against Floyd Mayweather or Manny Pacquiao, the pound-for-pound pound number one and two at the time. Of course, it never happened. But Kelbrook, moving into 2014, he gets that career-defining fight. He gets that moment where he can match the level of opposition of Amir Khan. And, of course, I'm making reference to the fight with Sean Porter. 
Um, he goes out to America. Uh, maybe the underdog, Sean Porter, was maybe not as rounded as what he is now, but he was a bit more of a wrecking ball at the time. I remember him beating Devin Alexander and beating Pauli Malinagi. And I wouldn't say I was very confident of Kelbrook. I'm a fan of Kelbrook, but I just thought Sean Porter at the time was a mini wrecking ball. As it was, Kelbrook went out, he boxed brilliantly and he won um, the, the IBF welterweight title. You know, he, he, he really put himself out there for, for a, a money-spinning fight. You know, could he have got the Mayweather fight? Could he have got the Pacquiao fight uh, ahead of Amerikan, given that he had the world title? As such, inexplicably, he goes on to um, talk about a couple of mediocre defences and whatnot, and the, 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 the whole stabbing incident in, uh, in Tenerife. You know, we never got the full story of that. And the bad blood was just swirling between the two. Kelbrook and Ahmed Khan simply didn't like each other. Post-fight press conferences and in the ring after fights, it was always the question that was being asked. You know, the, there was some disgusting comments made by Ahmed Khan in reference to why Kelbrook was stabbed. Um, and the fight just should have happened for me on the 30th of May, 2015. Um, I've, I've gone over quite a few facts there, Ewan. You know, I'm just going to bring you in there to, to get your opinion on, on the fight and, you know, Obviously, we're trying to narrow it down to that kind of 2014, 2015, 2016 window. What's your thoughts on the potential American Kelbrook fight at that time? It's really hard. It is a, it is a true 50 50 because, like you say, um, Kelbrook only had the one win, really. You know what I mean? Senchenko and Hatton were good wins, but they weren't. They weren't the win that was Sean Porter, but he had a, he had one good win. But at the same time, Amir Khan had he'd beaten Maidana, like you say, in an absolute thriller. He'd starched Malinaji. He'd starched Zab Judah, who, although again past his best, was still is still a quality operator. He'd beaten Luis Colazo. Um, he'd you know he'd beaten Lamont Peterson. He, he was robbed against Lamont Peterson. Uh, so do you know what I mean? Khan had had these kind of these far higher caliber fights against far higher calibers of opponent but he'd lost you know he'd, he'd been knocked out by Danny Garcia and he'd been knocked out obviously famously by Brady Prescott as well and then Kel Brook had never he didn't have a single blemish on his record he'd been punch perfect in almost all of his fights and so it's it's a really hard one because one of them has operated at a higher level but has the losses to prove it and the other one hadn't operated at that level, but you know we have no idea whether he would have been able to or not. It's a really tough one, and I, I totally agree with the date. That's when it should have happened. It should have been, you know, the kind of second defense of uh, of Brooks uh, IBF title. But again, it's it's a really hard one to break down. But uh, for my money, I'm I'm a big fan of both. Uh, but I just think that that Khan has the X factor that Brook doesn't. Brook is good at everything. He's got a good jab. He's got good feet. He's got a good chin. He's got uh, you know he's he's got decent power. But Amir Khan's speed is his X factor. He has a world class X factor. He might have a he might he is chinny and he he has not the best chin, but he has an X factor that takes him to world level. That for me, Brook kind of doesn't and didn't at the time. And Khan just he he seems. To have that, to be able to dig from that well in a way that broke against, I don't know. It's it seems really bad because I I'm, I don't in any way intend to slag off Kel Brook or say that he's not good because he's an excellent excellent fighter and I'm a massive fan of his. But Amir Khan does seem to have that X factor at world level that's that's beaten that's got him to beat people like Alexander Algieri, Calazzo, you know, and Maidana and and really push him at world level. Absolutely. Um, I'll get on to, to my prediction in a second to finish. Um, but there was just a couple of quotes, you know, that 
really epitomise the the level of, of, of why this fight didn't happen, you know. And one from Amir Khan, he says, I am more known in America than Kel Brook is in the UK. Um, making reference to the fact that he's more popular in a foreign country than Kel Brook is in his own country, which again is debatable, but it just goes to show the the, the level of uh, superiority Amir Khan felt that he had over Kel Brook. Um, after the Jojo Dam fight, uh, which was the first defence of uh, Kelbrook's IBF title, his homecoming fight. He says, if you're watching Amir, then get in here with me. I know you're delicate around the whiskers, making reference to the fact that, you know, he truly believed that he would have knocked out Amir Khan. Now, moving into um, my prediction, you know, um, again, it's I'm, I'm not one to be an aftertimer. I try and place myself um, back into 2015 when this fight was around. I've always been a fan of Amir Khan. I followed him through the Olympics in 2004 all the way to the, the silver medal. Uh, I enjoyed watching him turn over to the professional ranks and watching his career build on ITV. And he just progressed at such a, a meteoric rate, you know, and yes, he had losses along the way, but he bounced back and he bounced back very, very well. Um, you know, some of the wins on his, his, his uh, record are unbelievable. Um, and, and look better in time. In 2015, for me, Amir Khan was a level above Kel Brook, although Kel Brook was an extremely competent world-level operator. Uh, for me, Amir Khan would have boxed circles around him. I think after four or five rounds, Kel Brook would have reverted to trying to land that, that one shot, that one big uh, chocolate brownie, as he says, um, and really tested the whiskers of, of Amir Khan. Uh, I think the, the, the hand speed of... Amir Khan is blurring. Um, I can see it being quite similar to the Amir Khan Devin Alexander fight, where you know there's nothing really wrong with Devin Alexander at that point, and there would have been nothing wrong with Kel Brook in 2015. I just think he would have been found out. He would have been competitive, but he would have been outboxed. And eventually, I think it, you know, Amir Khan's not a devastating punch. I think it would have been an accumulation of punches. Um, I think we could see the eyes starting to swell of, of Kel Brook, and uh, I think Amir Khan would take it on a on a clear but competitive, uh, unanimous, unanimous decision. You know, maybe eight rounds to four or something around those kind of numbers. Um, in 2015, that would have been my prediction for the potential Amir Khan Kelbrook fight that should have happened. I do agree. I think that that is the most likely outcome. I think that if you, again, if you do a kind of, but if you do a kind of, if they fought 100 times, what would they be? And for me, it's 70, 30, 70 times out of 100 Calm boxes his head off and he moves and he keeps him frustrated and he keeps him at distance. He works his jab, works his feet, moves around. But 30 times out of 100, Kel catches him on the whiskers and he goes out. Because Kel Brook is a, he's a great fighter and he, he does pack a punch. And Khan is chinny. Everybody knows Khan's chinny. But again, I, I agree with you that the most likely outcome for me in that fight is, is an Amir Khan masterclass. Like I said, he has the X factor of his speed and he's, the, he's probably up there with the all-time fast welterweights. And I, it, that's not something I say lightly, but hand speed for hand speed, he's, you know, he's genuinely up there with the likes of, uh, of a Sugar Ray Leonard or a Henry Armstrong. He's, he was that fast. He was very, very fast. And that's the X factor I think he'd have over Kel in 2015. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just like, you know, again, to add a little bit of an asterisk to the conversation, um, this is the only fighter of the six um, that could still potentially happen. You know, we're in 2020, and this is a huge eight years after that appearance on ringside, you know. And and this is, like I say, eight years, uh, both a much faded version of themselves. And looking back in, in you know, we, we say this fight should have happened in 2015. In the five years since 
the prime date for me. We look at their records and, you know, Kelbrook went up and fought uh, Gennady, uh, Gennady Glovkin. Um, Amir Khan fought Canelo Alvarez and Kelbrook fought Errol Spence Jr. And Amir Khan fought Terence Crawford. It's not like they've ducked big fights, but for one reason or another, they've just not got it on with each other. And it, it's so frustrating. It's by far the most frustrating fight on my list um, because of the opera, the, the level of opposition that they've took on rather than boxing each other, if you like. For Amir Khan, Kel Brook is an easier fight than Crawford or Canelo, without a doubt. And for Kel Brook, Amir Khan's an easier fight than Errol Spence or Gennady Glovkin. And that's why it just... And, and it makes more money than all those fights. You know, the, the, the money that was on the table for Amir Khan to fight Kel Brook this, in 2019 far outweighed the money that he was paid by top rank to fight Terence Crawford. That's... But I just think it's the, 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 the general consensus of a loss means more than the money, if that makes sense. I think both guys are scared of losing more than they're worried about the financial gain. Yeah, not even necessarily like. losing generally. You know, if you're going to take on the Crawfords and Spencers, well, you're not afraid to lose, but they're fr- afraid to lose to each other. Yeah. It's, it's about saving Absolutely. face. And like you say, it, they could still fight and that would still be a good fight. But yeah, it's, it is, it's crazy because it, it, was, it made so much sense for so long and it still never came off. And like you say, that's why it's frustrating. Absolutely. So, uh, the the sixth and final fight, the third of your catalogue, Ewan. Um, what have you got? Well, for I for picked your final very fight? big men. I picked heavyweights, and I thought I was looking back down the weight classes and thinking, who two of the small men that really missed each other and, and could have been the best? And I settled on uh, two 1980s featherweights, the Clone Cyclone, Barry McGuigan, and Azuma Nelson. So Azuma Nelson had just come off. He'd lost in the early 80s to Salvador Sanchez, who's considered by many to be one of the best featherweights of all time. And he'd lost the unanimous decision, but Azuma Nelson was flown over to, for that fight and he didn't even own a mouth guard. It was far too much too soon for, uh, for Azuma Nelson. But by 1985, he'd, uh, he'd regained his powers, Azuma Nelson, and he'd proved how good he really was, beating uh, the British great Pat Cowdell, one of our greatest ever fighters, not to win a world title in just a round, to win the WBC belt. And at the same time, well, about a month earlier, in uh, famously at Queen's Park Rangers, Barry McGuigan took on the 19-year undefeated Eusebio Pedroza and put on the performance of his career to win the WBA and lineal featherweight titles. And so in 1985, after those two bouts, we had a devastating puncher in Azuma Nelson who was at the peak of his powers versus the boxer puncher in McGuigan, the body puncher, the swarming fighter, the kind of all-rounder that was Barry McGuigan, who just had the best win of his career by far. And one of the all-time great wins at featherweight, in my opinion, beating Eusebio Pedroza. And they're both there, ready to fight each other, and it just never quite came off. Yeah, again, you know, we go back to the fact that when these fights bubble around and, you know, it's not just like a, a, a... you know, an air, a central area title level or a British level or a European level, you know, it's, it's two boxes at the peak of their powers. And you just want to know at that point in time, who's the number one and the fight just doesn't happen. There's a lot of speculation about uh, McGuigan and whether it made financial sense for McGuigan, because obviously he was a massive star in Britain at the time. And we forget how big a star, you know, yep. we list the British greats and things. We forget how big a star he was. He was absolutely enormous in Britain and Ireland. He was, he was the man for a lot of the 1980s. 
and he he really was at the top of his power and he was making lots of money per fight and although Zuma Nelson was very very good and had had big fights and continued to have big fights he wasn't a name over here and he wasn't a massive name in America either he was he was kind of one of those bogeymen of a division where nobody nobody wants to fight Azuma Nelson but everybody knows how good he is and then, obviously, later on, McGuigan would kind of fade into the background and Azuma Nelson would go on to have these amazing wars with Jeff Fennec and prove how good he really was later on in his career. But it was one of those that, you know, for one reason or another, Azuma Nelson not wanting to come to the UK for one, but also McGuigan not wanting to pay him very much money or to travel. It was, again, one of these business negotiation ones, but something that I really think is a missed-out fight because of how, how brilliantly their styles could well have gelled. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it kind of epitomises what you're saying there, the fact that it's it's almost like Zuma Nelson is, is part of the Who Needs Him club when Barry Guggen was making all this money anyway and he had home comforts and, you know, like you say, he was he was a crossover star, he was a household name. Um, and, you know, as a fan, you want to see those kind of fights, but as a boxer, we're also going to look at, you know, the financial implications and, you know, fight fans never really like listening to the, the financial side of things, they just want the best to fight the best or the, the best fights to be made. Um, but yeah, looking back at, at Bam Rigwigan at that stage, you know, maybe seeing Zuma Nelson as, as a member of the Who Needs and Club. Absolutely, I think Zuma Nelson might be king of the Who Needs and Club because again, he didn't, didn't, he wasn't a massive draw, he didn't bring pay per view numbers, but my god, could he fight? He was an absolutely devastating puncher. Like I say, Pat Cowdell went 12 rounds with Salvador Sanchez, and, you know, in, a, in one of the all-time great British performances overseas in a losing effort. And Azuma Nelson knocked him out in the round. Obviously, it was, it was towards the end of Cowdell's career, but Azuma Nelson was a powerful, scary, horrible man to fight in his prime. And so was McGuigan. It was no easy fight fighting McGuigan, but those two, they were absolutely the two best featherweights in the world at that time. And yet they managed to avoid each other and, that sad though it is, like you say, it's it's a, a business decision that that McGuigan took. I think more than Nelson. I think Nelson would have been quite happy to uh, to get it on, but he didn't want to come here. And it's sad that we didn't get to see it. But like you say, it's they both made lots of money out of boxing, do going their separate ways. Yeah, unfortunately, so it didn't happen. But can we get your breakdown on, in your opinion, how that fight would have played out had it have been made at the optimal time? How do you see the, the Jim Nelson and Baron McGuigan fight? It's a really hard one because I'm an, I'm an enormous McGuigan fan. And like I say, I, the, one of my favourite fights is the McGuigan-Pedroza. It's, it's an amazing fight to watch back. And I would, I would recommend everyone who hasn't seen it. Go, it's on YouTube in fairly decent quality. It's, it's worth a watch. But again, I'm a massive fan of McGuigan. And like I say, his skill set was amazing. But... Uh, it's hard to look past the Zuma Nelson. He was, he for featherweight, you look back and you see video of him, he, he looks like a middleweight. He, he's stacked full of muscles, he moves fast, he's powerful, and he's, and he's aggressive, but he's intelligent. He can duck, he can weave, he can move his feet, he enters intelligently, he works well out of the clinch. His, his cutting off the ring is unbelievable. I think that McGuigan would have had a real handful. Uh, I'd say it was. Just, I'm going to back Barry McGuigan just because I'm such a massive fan. I'll say Barry McGuigan split decision, but Azuma Nelson could well have knocked him out. Fantastic. Um, again, you know, like you mentioned, the Barry McGuigan fight uh, with Pedroza is, is, is must see. Um, the fact that it is on YouTube, you know, there's no excuses for for people not to see that fight. 
Um, but yeah, that, that closes our, our six-fight series, if you like, um, the, the catalogue of six fights that should have happened that unfortunately never did. Um, some great fights there, some great potential fights um, of, of yesteryear and the Amir Khan and Kel Brook fight, unbelievably, could still happen. Um, but again, for our listeners, if they, if they dispute anything that we've said, if they don't agree with any kind of prediction, then our social media channel is always open for debate. We're open to criticism, we're open to praise. Um, we are learning on the job, you know, we're still a fairly new platform. Um, we've got a great team bringing some great content, but by all means, you're on Twitter at Simbox. We welcome any kind of criticism, debate or argument in terms of if we've done anything right or wrong. Yeah, my favourite review is Ewan doesn't know anything about boxing. So I'm absolutely welcome for that again. Hit me. I'd love to talk to anyone about these fights. And I think it's, I think, I think discussion is brilliant between boxing fans. And it's, it's what makes the sport special because some of these will never know. And it's it's great to get what other people think. And like I say, if, if you've got a learning opinion about something, feel free to tell me I'm wrong because I love the debate and I love learning. And that's one of the reasons I love old school boxing is because there's always more to learn. And there's always someone that knows more than you. Yeah, most definitely. That's, that's the most important thing is that, you know, trying to be open-minded, especially in the modern era of social media. You, know, you can't be too closed off. You can't take too many things personally. Um, but I'd just like to move on to the fact that, you know, with this podcast, even like we mentioned earlier on, it is something that we're going to try and uh, further on. It's something that we're going to try and build. Um, we, we really enjoy dissecting boxing. You know, we've got the brilliant Simbox Talks 2 series. We've got your throwback series on a Thursday. We've got the Instagram live chats. Um, so I think this is just going to be another brilliant aspect of our boxing content moving forward. You know, for the listeners that are listening, uh, we are going to add more framework. We're going to have more regular content. You know, we might add in some telephone interviews with boxers and we're going to get some uh, boxers and, and coaches and trainers involved in the podcast. So it's going to be a really exciting venture. I'm really looking forward to it. And the podcasting side of things was the last element of a social media channel that I was uh, keen to explore, just given the fact that it was something that I'd never done before, but I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed discussing boxing myself, you, and I really enjoyed putting my thoughts out there. Um, and I'm really excited for the future. Like we say, we can get this framework into place. You know, this is almost like a a beta edition of the Simbox Talks to uh, the Simbox Presents. Let's talk boxing. Um, and this this was like episode one, if you like. We've done the feature episodes in the past, but this is almost like ground zero for us, and we're going to build up from here into a regular. Um, hour-long episodes, you know, this is one's gone over a little bit longer, but in general, we're going to try and keep it short and snappy and down to an hour. Um, really looking forward to, to, to building the podcast and seeing just how far Let's Talk Boxing Absolutely, I'm looking forward to it. Yep, so moving forward, um, we're going to bring more episodes of the Simbox Talks too. We've got a couple lined up for this week, you know, so, so our listeners can check those out. Um, we've got some Instagram lives booked in for next week, some really different angles of content. You know, I'd like to give a big shout out to the team. You know, of course, Ewan, that's on the call with me now. Um, Sean, Aaron, Bobby, Lee, and our US correspondent, uh, Alex Pearl. You know, really appreciate uh, the work that he does over there and Jason Peters uh, as well. Uh, but yeah, it's really exciting times for Simbox, you know, and really looking forward to the future. And, and once boxing gets back to normal, continuing to further our boxing content and, and, and the amount of content we're able to bring. 
Yeah, really excited about that. Obviously, we've got lots of different articles and stuff, and I, I'm I'm looking back and trying to do some more research into, like you say, the older older annals of boxing and trying to find out uh, find out some uh, some cool things that people might not know about. So uh, yeah, really looking forward to those. Thanks. Yeah, most definitely. So thanks to the listeners for listening today. This has been episode one of Let's Talk Boxing. Uh, myself, Luke Garner, you and Breeze, find us on Twitter at Simbox and across social media. Thanks for joining.